Welcome back to Terra Stories, News from the Field. In this series, we share the stories of conservation warriors fighting to protect and preserve the Earth's most precious resources and how innovative green technology and solutions are being used to create and support sustainable economies worldwide. I'm your host, Kim Langbecker. I'm, I'm really excited today uh, to welcome uh, Catherine Bergman, who is the engineer and COO of Well Beyond, and Sarah Evans, who's the founder of Well Aware and Well Beyond. Uh, well Beyond is a social good company, and uh, Well Aware is a social profit that is um, doing some amazing work around providing clean water in Eastern Africa. So, welcome, Sarah and Catherine. Thank you. Hi. We're very happy to be here. And, and I understand you're in Austin and it's a little stormy today, so hopefully we won't hear lightning crashing and, and thunder and all that kind of fun stuff. And you'll be, we'll, we won't lose, we won't lose our connection. I think we should be okay, but you may hear the thunder. We'll see. Awesome. Awesome. Well, so, so Sarah, um, you know, we're obviously, we have some, uh, some close tie-ins because you and Tony uh, Saxon, our CEO of, of Terra, have known each other for a long time. So can you share how you all connected and, and sort of the, the, the origin story of WellAware? Of course. Yeah, um, uh, Tony, and I, Tony and I met um, years ago. I, I wish I could remember exactly when. I could go back and probably look at my uh, my communications and find out, but um, we realized we were both in similar um, industries and thinking sort of into the future about where uh, this work was going um, and have had lots of conversations dreaming about what we could do together over the years and have stayed in touch. And I'm so grateful because now I get to be here with you guys today. Um, so by the time that Tony and I were first uh, getting to know each other, Well Beyond was a really just an idea that I had. So I'll, I'll back up to Well Aware. So Well Aware is a nonprofit organization that I started 12 or so years ago. Um, and because I, <laughs> I do not have a background in nonprofit or, uh, you know, uh, developing countries at all, I was a lawyer. And so I was asked to help on a project in Kenya to uh, raise funds to replace some livestock. So the, the, the drought in East Africa gets pretty bad uh, from time to time every 10 to 20 years. And this was one of those times. And a friend of mine wanted very badly to help support some family she had in one of these communities in Kenya. And I said, I will totally help. I'll help you write up the paperwork, you know, so we can take the donations for a nonprofit. And one thing led to another. And I realized, you know what, we, this is a water problem. Um, and the community is struggling because they're losing their livelihood, the livestock, but they're also struggling in all these other ways that were impacted directly by water or lack thereof. And I said, hey, why don't we do this? Let's drill a well instead. <laughs> and I will readily admit now that it was really reckless and irresponsible. I didn't know what I was doing, um, but we did get very lucky. Um, fortunately, we got lucky. And fortunately, too, I quickly realized that most of this type of work being done in these regions actually doesn't work uh, over time. So I, I continued to build the nonprofit. So we had a model by studying failure, actually, a model to create these systems that would last. 
Um, and so then over over the years, we uh, increased our team and our capacity and our our project work. Um, and now Weller is doing really, really well. No pun intended. Well, and I, and I will say that, you know, you've got some amazing statistics that you share on your website, which is wellawareworld.org. And I'll, of course, we'll share that again. But you have a 100% success rate, which is kind of outrageous and almost unheard of. You know, I've, I have been privileged to do some work in places like Africa and other developing countries. And you know, seeing really well-intentioned projects, as you referenced, uh, around wells. And, you know, the 99.9% of the time, these projects end up going sideways because at some point the well breaks, there's no one there that understands how to fix the well, there's no parts, and then then you just end up with a really expensive art project. So I, I can understand why people sort of bristle a little bit when they think about the amount of money that has gone into some of these projects and the success rate around it. So the fact that you have a 100% success rate is crazy. We're very proud of that. That is why it is front and center on our, on our, on our website. And we work very, very hard toward it. Um, and I know lot, lots of organizations work very hard. And as you say, completely well-intended it's just that we just we have a lack of focus of results over time in international development in general, not just in the water sector. And that is what we wanted to do differently. And out of that, we have been able to maintain that 100% success rate over, over the last 12 years. And I'm happy to break that down more if you would like, but I don't want to talk too much just yet. <laughs> well, I, I would really love for you to share a little bit about um, you know, when we talk about clean water, we can certainly think about there, there are communities here, even in our own backyard in the United States, that don't have access to, to clean water, whether it's on, you know, reservations or in some cities. Um, but talk specifically about the challenges that that are being faced on the ground in the communities you work with, and also the region that you work with. You have a very targeted region in, in Africa. Do we do? And in the very beginning, we weren't sure if we were going to remain that targeted. But what we realized now, in in uh, you know a few years in, is that we were becoming experts in that region, and we were gaining expertise that is very specific to that region. And it, and you're and you're right. There are these water issues or similar issues all around the world. Um, and I, I'll tell you, we we still think about. Um, especially on the the in, in the other company, well beyond how we might be able to support reservations, but the the politics and the bureaucracy that exists in the United States w- will preclude us probably from ever working in the United States outside of reservations. Um, and people often ask, why 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 well why East Africa for well aware? And you know the short answer to that is, well, it was an accident, right? <laughs> I was just asked to help with some legal paperwork. Um, and then one thing led to another, another, and Kim, you and I talked about this too. I, um, I found that I had this, you know, sort of skill I could apply that was really relevant in that region. And I was drawn to that region. I just, I just felt at home, even on my first trip to East Africa. So, um, I I thought, you know, know, I'm, if I'm going to devote my life to this and I, I knew that I would, 
Um, I also get to be in a place that makes me really happy and I feel at home. And now we, we feel like we have family there and a huge network. Um, and the need is still there and it's not going away anytime soon. So that's why that region. And when, just for folks who may not know what you mean when you reference East Africa, what are the countries or the, the um, you know, communities that you're working specifically with in East Africa? Yeah, thank you. So uh, Kenya is our, is the country where we have most of our projects. We have almost full coverage in Kenya, almost in every county, uh, but for the very north part and the eastern parts, and that is for uh, well, there's a groundwater problem in some of those places and also um, a safety issue in some of those places. And then we added Tanzania as one of our regions of work a few years ago. And now we're looking at Uganda. But we also are open to anything in that general uh, region um, for the future. So if there are any possible partnerships out there, uh, we're open to discussion. That's excellent. And you also you work... You, you know, you're, you're not operating in a vacuum. You're, you collaborate really. Yeah. That, that's like sort of the centerpiece other than the expertise that you have. To me, it's like when I think about how do you make something successful when you're, you know, when you're coming from an outside perspective, the, the only way that you can do it is to have that kind of trust and relationship with the communities, but also with other local entities. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? That is so true. And community is one of our four core values at WellAware. And that, that is because this applies to the work and how we approach our work in the communities, uh, the beneficiaries um, specifically, but also in the office and how we handle ourselves and deal with each other and how we work with partner organizations and governments and the private sector. And because what we know is that uh, we don't know a lot of other stuff that needs to play a role in development work in, in these regions. And so lots of um, government relationships, other NGOs working in international development, but also but in education, in agriculture, and health, um, so that we can plug in our partnerships where we see the community has so much potential to grow and thrive. And that is a large part of what we do. And I think one of the things that's, that's really Im important to, when you think about this is that, you know, one, and I'm reading this specifically from what you share on your website, one in seven people lack access to clean water. Right. Women and girls spend six hours every day collecting water, six hours. Yeah. And then every 90 seconds, a child dies from a preventable waterborne disease. Those are those are really, really um, sobering statistics. Yeah, and it's frustrating too because um, it's solvable. Uh, it, a diarrheal disease, which is more often than not caused by some kind of waterborne illness, is the leading cause of children under the age of five. Um, and it's 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 frustrating. Uh, and for women and girls in particular, it is the amount of time of their day that they have to devote to this one chore that again is solvable. Um, and another thing that a lot of people aren't aware of 
is that for girls in school, if there is no source of reliable clean water at school and when they hit puberty and they're menstruating, if there is nowhere there for them to um, tend to their hygiene, they will not go to class during those days. They will fall behind and they will drop out. And it is a large reason we're not seeing girls in secondary school in these places. So you can imagine the game changing effect that um, that we get to have on girls in particular with just applying a source of clean water that's going to last. Right. Well, and you share that um, on your website that education rates for girls increase by 58% when there's clean water in the community. So you're absolutely right. It is, it is incredibly game-changing, uh, not just for those girls, but you know, most studies have shown that when women and girls are given opportunities, that it isn't just beneficial to them, it benefits their family and their entire community. So there's a, a knock-on effect that happens when girls are given the opportunities to receive an education and, and to learn. So that, that really obviously has a massive impact on all of the communities that you work with. It does. And we, we we're, we're very, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, vocal about how it impacts women and girls. And just to quantify it a little bit more, the World Bank has a statistic, and it is that every, for every additional year a girl is in school, her future income goes up 12% for every year. So you, just like you say, it is not just, you know, benefiting her, it is her family, her community, and eventually her region and her country. It is huge. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious, we haven't really touched on how you actually do it. <laughs> like what's what's the secret sauce that makes well aware different and that what is, is is there a special technology that you use like how how do you how do you do what you do sarah gosh uh we have a very formal uh process with a lot of messy stuff in each step <laughs> and you know uh, what we call ourselves more than anything else uh we are change maker or cha sorry change managers so because everything is always changing and not just with you know the, the the cost of goods and the supply chain and um rainfall and the economy and the currency exchange but we we spend a lot of time figuring out what's going to be best for the community led by their input before we ever put any kind of infrastructure in the ground. And we we know that that means that those results over time that we want to see, that's our goal, those are much e more easily achieved when you front load uh, your efforts and understanding of the community and the region before you implement. And that is a, a, a that's a, how our success rate is uh, largely achieved. And then again, that technical expertise, we have a team of hydrogeologists and engineers, and um, they are amazing people, mostly volunteer, that help us uh, vet uh, projects on the technical side and, of course, oversee, plan for, and follow up with. Um, and then we also have a community team, and these are Kenyans and uh, East Africans, and they guide us through our relationship with every single community. So we fully understand what their hopes and dreams are, what their past experiences with water um, and any kind of water infrastructure or aid intervention, and just try to plug in only the pieces that they lack. And uh, we just that's that's how we have success because. These communities, they, they, they know what they need. They know how to proceed. They have plans. 
Uh, they have documents, they have proposals, and all we need to do is plug in the technical expertise if they're lacking that, um, and some funding. And so those three things, yeah. And and are you uh, utilizing things like rainwater catchment systems? Is that part of what you do, or is that your your? Because obviously, as you mentioned, there there are extreme weather conditions on the ground, um, from drought to rainy season. So, how are you using those kinds of of, of tech? Sort of, I I would say low tech technologies, but that are extremely effective. Um, in in these kinds of areas. Oh yeah, yeah. And for for technologies too, we do uh, we use almost exclusively solar on, on all of our type systems, which is not common, surprisingly. Uh, it's readily available and it is very long lasting. And when we get a, a PR a project request form from a community, uh, which is the first step of anything we do, so we have that community investment piece right out of the gate. Um, we're almost always looking for groundwater, but then about half the time, maybe not quite half the time, we realize that it's not going to be wise to try to access the groundwater. And when I say that, I mean, it's, these are deep boreholes that are cased in steel with submersible pumps that are on solar power. So they are high yielding community systems. They are not hand pumps. We do not do hand pumps. I can unpack that later if you'd like. But when we realize that we cannot access the groundwater because it's not there or it's not going to be safe to drink, then we start exploring those other options. So rainwater harvesting is a lot of what we do with UV purification on solar. And also we do some pipeline work from natural springs. Uh, and those are usually uh, option B or C, but they are also really good uh, systems that we put a lot of effort into ensuring are going to last a long time. And I, I would love for you to to share why you don't use hand pumps because I think when we when we see photographs of communities that get a well, a lot of them are you know hand pumps, and so I think that's sort of the visual that we have in our heads that you know people are you know maybe traveling for you know some distance and certainly not, you know, walking five or six miles and spending hours a day, but that they're coming from, you know, maybe a region or, or, a, a, you know, several communities coming and there's this hand pump. So I'd like to dispel that, that visual. Yeah. Um, so why, why, why don't you use the hand pump method? I would like to dispel that visual too, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a really unfortunate way that we've educated uh, um, our you know, supporters here in the Western world. So various reasons. Now, let me let me say, too, we have some really good friends uh, in doing work uh, with hand pumps in partnerships. And there is a time and a place for that type of solution. But our focus is long term infrastructure and results over time and development work. So we're really looking for for that ripple effect of impact um, over a long period of time. That said, um, if we want that ripple effect uh, result, then we do not want to put an infrastructure that uh, breaks so easily that is accessing water from a um, uh, the, the highest water table is often contaminated with fecal matter uh, just because of the way the you know, topography and geology and, and the way things work and seep into the groundwater there. Um, and also, too, here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. You're not getting a lot of water from a hand pump. So this is 
a psych this is a community psychology and we cannot assume that people on the other side of the world who have been growing up over generations in a very different way understand that the water coming out of this hand pump is is safer even if it is than another source that might be an open you know pond or a sort of a stagnant uh lake or a contaminated river and so if they're not seeing that the water is having an impact on other things around them that they can see like uh, they're growing crops um they're able to clean the kitchen and cook with the water they can sell the water at a kiosk for a nominal fee and then put that money back into the community if, if, if these communities are not getting those results, they're going to understand less that that new source of, of water is uh, important for them to use. And another thing about hand pumps, and then I'll, I'll drop it, um, it is uh, they are uh, notorious for domestic uh well, domestic and sexual violence. And and because you have these long queues of women, um, I I have I have used a hand pump before. I've stood there and used it, and it takes a while to fill up a bucket. And so people are in long lines waiting a long time, and they're all women. Um, and it is um it is just an open opportunity for uh, violence and, and abuse. And for all of those reasons, it is just not what well aware um, uh, does with our donor funding and that is not part of our model. Well, and I think it's, you know, we've, if we could liken it to hearing about stories of women going together wood and, and having to walk long distances to get wood and obviously the same things that are happening in that case, then it's an easy sort of way to draw that comparison and understand why it doesn't make sense in most situations, as you said, there is a time and a place. Um, I'd like to bring uh, Catherine in, Catherine Bergman, who is the engineer and COO of Well Beyond, which is which is the social profit part of of what you do, and you are also the the, the co-founder or the founder of of Well Beyond. But Catherine, can you talk a little bit about how? And and just to sort of whet the audience's appetite, we will be interviewing Catherine um, on our Terra Impact stories, so that will come at a later date. But this will just give you a little bit of an idea about what Well Beyond is doing and how the two uh, entities work together. So, Catherine, can you share a little bit about uh, Well Beyond? Yes, I'd love to. Um, yeah, so Well Beyond kind of grew out of Well Aware. Um, as Sarah's kind of been discussing, you know, we have this 100% success rate model and um, it's kind of unheard of in the industry. So um, a lot of other, you know, nonprofits and organizations quickly realized that they wanted to kind of implement that same model. Um, so we got a lot of requests for consulting and, um, you know, just helping other organizations try to do what we're doing. And we quickly realized that in order to do that, we would need to kind of branch out and um, the way the nonprofit world works, it's just easier to do it as a for-profit model. So um, we created Well Beyond um, and it started out kind of consulting. So working with these other organizations to do better work and make more sustainable systems. But we quickly also realized that, you know, um, technology advancing in these areas is huge. So. Um, for instance, in Kenya, 70% of Kenya has 3G um, and about like 35% of Kenyans own a smartphone. So we said, well, why don't we just create an app that, you know, helps these communities maintain their systems, 
and um, you know, do maintenance checklists and diagnostic reporting. Um, you know, when a water system goes down, um, it's nine out of ten times a very simple fix. A pipe is leaking, or um, the the float switch is not in the right place. You know, very simple things. The solar panels need washing. Um, so we created a tool that helps these communities walk through those issues and quickly diagnose their system and get it up and running in, you know, two to three times quicker than what they would if, you know, they have to keep in touch with the organization and send someone out there and, and you know, it gets expensive as well. So um, we created an app that kind of does that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's also uh, developed um, into quite more because, you know, uh, COVID happened and we realized all of these communities that um, we support went into lockdown and they can't, we can't send our Kenya team to them to fix anything um, or provide them the the information that's needed to, to really prevent themselves against this disease. So um, we included training modules into the, the app as well. So um, water sanitation and hygiene training, um, we created modules about how to make a mask, how to build your own tippy tap to wash your hands. So um, preventing these these really simple methods um, of of protection for the communities, um, and you know that's also grown into now we've included feminine hygiene and reproductive health modules and um, all of these other things that you know it's just slippery sloped um, into into <laughs> lots of training. <laughs> well, and and you also really. Um, help to provide, um, you know, the project management and the project oversight to make sure that these things that you're, the, you know, these different uh, water systems or recommendations that you make are are actually effective and and are are put into, you know, you know, you, you can, it's one thing to plan; it's a whole other thing to execute. So having, you know, an organization like yours that provides that kind of oversight is, I would imagine, really critical. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really great too. We've, um, we included chat support in the app as well. So, you know, just hearing from the communities real time about what, what's going on in the ground and, and how we can help them, um, and better support them. And they've provided a lot of feedback on, you know, how to make the app as a whole better, um, in itself mm -hmm. and, and had really great feedback for that as well. So working with them has been great. That's that's amazing. I, I'm curious, and Sarah, either you or, or Catherine um, can answer. Obviously, we heard so many stories about communities that COVID was so much more deadly um, and spread so much easier in communities that didn't have access to running water, clean or otherwise. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you have any kind of insight into how your projects uh, and the work that you're doing on the ground perhaps help to support these communities to be more resilient in COVID versus communities perhaps in the same area that, that did not have this kind of uh, water access. Yeah, this is Sarah. And I think I, I wish we had really good data on this. Unfortunately, a lot of these regions don't even uh, they don't yet even have really good um, testing and reporting framework to be able to compile that data. However, we we know 
lot already about what happens to disease rates when you have a reliable source of clean water in one of these regions. So we can extrapolate from that with a with a uh, an illness a, a, that is as, as contagious as COVID, um, how the communities are able to combat the illness and defend against it in a much, much bigger way when there is water there. And, you know, also, too, everyone says everywhere, you just got to wash your hands all the time. That's one of the, that was in the beginning, that was the first thing they were telling us, right? Like, don't shake hands and wash wash your hands all the time. And so what, if communities are hearing this and they, they don't have a source of clean water, how, how are they supposed to do that? And how can they properly defend themselves or defend themselves at all against a pan, an epidemic like that or pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think that's the issue is that it sounds great to just to say, oh, just go wash your hands. And then it's a whole different ballgame when you don't actually have the access to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and I know you you did work at uh, at one time in Haiti. Um, and what was your experience like working there? Because that that's a country that I think we've seen so many yeah. So many projects not do well, of course, and and of course it's been a country that's had so many, you know, from the earthquake in two thousand. I I was there about a about a year and a half after the earthquake, and things were still incredibly challenging on the ground. Um, you know, there were internally displaced uh, person camps everywhere. We were we were on a nine hole golf course that had fifty five thousand people, and I don't. I don't recall seeing more than three sources for water and Oxfam was there and so many other organizations, but you know, it's just a, it's just a challenging situation, but talk a little bit about your experience in, in Haiti. Man. Yeah. Well, we did a little bit of work in Haiti right before hurricane Matthew. And then again, after, um, and gosh, you know, Haiti just keeps getting hit by, these natural disasters and it's still just, you know, to this day, very hard to work there. Sometimes it's impossible to even travel there, but here's the unfortunate thing for Haiti. Well, on the surface, it would seem fortunate. It's, it's not too difficult to get to. So you can travel there in a few hours. The time difference really isn't that much. And so it is an opportunity um, for people to raise funds to get in and out pretty quickly. So you have these large groups of people that raise funds or celebrities and talk about it a lot, but even big organizations like, you know, the Red Cross. Um, and it's just too easy a target of a country with, a, with, with citizens who, who, who don't have um, their own voice in the way that they should to be able to say, you know what, this really isn't what we need or want, right? So it's just a lot of band-aid work uh, that's been happening in Haiti for decades. Um, and so the population is jaded, as they should be. Uh, there's a lot of that uh, broken infrastructure artwork you were talking about, Kim. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's tough it's tough and so that there's a lack of real development work in haiti and the focus of those results over time um and i it's just a really bad cycle we we will will go back to haiti and would want to continue working there but it is a challenge unlike uh, any other place we've worked well, I'm I'm happy to hear that you would at least consider going back there because I do, uh, you know, having spent, you know, 
not a lengthy amount of time, but, you know, enough time to, and traveling around the country and, and seeing, uh, seeing the situation on the ground. Um, it's certainly a, it's a beautiful country. The people are so incredibly generous and beautiful and, and it is, there is tremendous challenges. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're at least willing to, you know, explore the possibility in the future. Um, and, and speaking about the future, um, you know, as somebody who's been in the social sector for, for 20 years plus, um, which I, is, I, I must be insane. Um, <laughs> we both are. We all are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's kind of like a sickness that creeps in. Um, how do you make it, how do you ensure that uh, well aware is sustainable for the future and you know what kinds of initiatives and and opportunities do do you see in being able to continue to, to have a sustainable organization i love that you asked that question um well thank uh, you <laughs> <laughs> and gosh Catherine and i both have really really big ambitions um uh, for this i'm going to keep this to 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 plans and dreams that we have. So um, the international development sector really needs uh, to change. <laughs> and well, nonprofits in general, um, because to have a, a sustainable nonprofit organization in the Western world, it is a it is a, an interesting scrutiny. Um, I don't know, Kim, are, uh, have you, are you, do you know who Dan Pilata is? Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. I love him. <laughs> yeah. And all of that. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's a it's a weird way that people think that nonprofits are supposed to to function, and so it's already an uphill battle. Uh, that said, we're you know we 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 have laid a lot of uh, groundwork and planning and structure in place so that well aware uh, will be around as long as we are needed. However, um, when we first started Well Beyond, one of one of the reasons was to be. Uh, a um a source of funding and support for the nonprofit. We realized that this sort of hybrid model, a as it, Catherine uh, mentioned before, we the for profit has a lot more flexibility, and we can hire talent, and we can pay them well, we can keep them around, and we can take investment dollars. And we did. We uh, well beyond the the social good company for profit, for, for, for purpose. <laughs> we're trying to figure out what we're going to call ourselves. All the names. Um, we, we have already done a, a series seed, which catalyzes our growth, which, which then helps support the nonprofit and so on and so forth. So we've created our own out of the box model to ensure uh, that WellAware will last as long as we are needed. <clears throat> well, and I think that you know, this is an opportunity for organizations that are do that are doing similar kinds of work, maybe not doing wells, but but other kinds of work where there is a level of expertise needed to to really think about it from that perspective. Because, you know, as as I like to say, we rely on the kindness of strangers <laughs> to to support ourselves. And because that's that's the honest to God truth. We we do. Um Yes, we, we, you know, we might have friends and family when we first start out in, in the social sector that, you know, that open up their checkbooks, but then you have to build beyond that. And, you know, I, I note that you have a couple really interesting uh, corporate sponsors that are part of your, um, of your ecosystem. 
Um, and one of them, Toyota, you actually won the Mother of Invention Award, which I think is awesome. Um, talk a little bit about, first of all, the, the, the corporate sponsors that you have and how that came about. But also, I'd love to hear about the Mother of Invention Award and what that meant to the organization. Yeah, I'll speak to the Toyota thing first. And it was it was a big, big out of the blue surprise back. I, I learned about it in 2016 and then I was the 2017 awardee. And um, honestly, honestly, Kim, when I first got the email, I thought it was a scam. <laughs> I, thought, I probably would, too. You know, things that, you know, um, but man, it was uh, such a cool program. And uh, the the way that we've gotten any of our corporate partners is just from a lot of networking and a, attending events and speaking at events and sort of taking any opportunity that came our way in the early days and uh, cultivating those relationships and growing them um, with Toyota specifically. Because because we talked about this the other day, I, I thought back on it and I remember now uh, Toyota got uh, wind of well aware because I did a presentation for a group of people at a company and one of the women who was just sitting there listening nominated me <laughs> and then I got it. Um, and Toyota has been amazing. They've been very uh, supportive. Unfortunately, this is devastating. They have discontinued their mother of invention program. Um, but I was one of the lucky 19 uh, uh, women that received that, that award over the years that they were holding it. So that's cool. So the other corporate partners, sort of the same story. You know, I just, um, lunch and learns at companies, phone calls, meetings, trips to different states to meet with different people that usually yielded nothing. Uh, but every now and then uh, turned into a relationship that turned into a corporate partner. Well, and and Tito's is based. Uh, Tito's Vodka um, is based in Austin, where where you're at. So I'm I'm sure that probably helped a little bit. This is being sort of a hometown girl, if you will, uh, yeah. or hometown woman, if, yeah. as it were. So um, when when you're thinking about the that future, what that future looks like for for Well Aware. Um, what what are some of your goals um, that you, you know, you talked about this big vision, but what are some of your goals in uh, on the ground and, and how you how you see the organization um, growing in, in the next, say, five years? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting time. So because we've been implementing these projects for the last 12 years. And so, and every year we get to do more new projects, but because our model is that we don't ever really leave a community if they still need us, most of them don't, um, it's just more and more work over time. <laughs> it's another, another really cool thing that the two companies are working together is that because WellAware has a commitment to maintenance and upgrade needs for communities, now that we have the app, um, on from well beyond, communities have di direct guidance and access to information that they previously did not, and that is going to make our maintenance work so much simpler, easier to track and record and report on. So we feel like that part of the puzzle has has sort of been solved for, and we will continue to have to work out kinks and bugs, literally. 
Um, but that's kind of exciting. And and then from that, too, we're going to have all of this data and information on um, not the groundwater and how water tables might be changing, how water quality might be changing, and it is in these regions, that we would really love to share with, with partners and other people in the industry so that we can help the entire water sector do the work a little bit better. So that that's a goal. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, we... When you think about um, companies that have sort of this byproduct of data, and and I sh- let me let me just say um, entities, not just companies um, that have this byproduct of data, that's an incredibly valuable uh, aspect that I think most people don't really understand. Most people outside of the of you know the the social sector don't really understand. You know, we we're, we're always asking, well, what kind of impact do you make? You know, how many how many people in the community now have clean water and how many people in the community, you know, can now go to school or whatever that is. But th- those data points that you're talking about are sort of this, uh, it's almost like a, a gem that yeah. is being unearthed. Is it, would that be an accurate statement? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the missing links. Yes. And, and that, I think, then be, you know, that's where the connector points for you know the organizations that are working on the ground are now connecting the the communities themselves you know operating through them into governments into business into you know conservation um, at areas that they didn't have that you know that access to the data points before so that has to be really an exciting part of what you're looking at it's really, really exciting, especially when we think about it um, in a way that can improve the way that we we do this work. Because I don't want to, I don't want to even say how many wells were paid for by by well-meaning donors and implemented by well-meaning NGOs that are dry. But you know that doesn't need to be the case. Um, and and how then to really work with and understand and empower, truly empower communities. Um, Nobody means to go in and do something a community doesn't want, but that happens more often than not. So we're going to have this set of of data, real, real information that we can, we can share with people so they can better understand how to better execute. That's awesome. I'm curious, you know, there are a lot of organizations that do similar work to yours that bring folks on donor trips or volunteer trips to, you know, help build wells or to help build a school or whatever. Do you offer that kind of opportunity to uh, people that are interested in seeing what you do up close and personal? Volunteerism. It's a, it's a (laughs) word. (laughs) Um, And I avoided it for years, Kim, because I, I think I felt like I was a volunteerist in the very beginning, and I just was I, I hated the way I felt about it. Um, and you know, more and more, we're hiring most of our new hires are, are in country local uh, staff members. However, because the work we do is on the other side of the world, and people do really need to see. Um, to be able to understand it and to keep us and the rest of the industry accountable. We did uh, start doing these types of trips only once a year. I think back in 2017 was our first one. No, not not last year, obviously. 
And we will continue to do that. But you know what? We put our guests uh, through two to three different orientations before we even um, uh, sign them up to come along. And we don't take any more than eight or ten people with us. And it's curated and they're very informed about what their role is. Right. And the, the, the experts are already there uh, and the community knows what they want. We don't need to go in and tell them how to dig a ditch or brush their teeth. Um, and it, we're just there to, to learn um, and be plugged in where we're, we're genuinely asked to be plugged in. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it you know, it is a double edged sword in, in some ways. I'm curious, though, you said I hated the way I feel or I don't know if you used the word hate, but I, you didn't like the way you felt yeah. when you, you had done. Why? What, what, what was it about it that made you okay. really uncomfortable? I went with a group of people um, and, uh, you know, a, a bunch of people are all from Texas, a um, bunch of white people. And um, I don't, I just, people, people were taking pictures of the community members without asking them first and um, throwing candy out of car windows. And I, I, I understand now how to define that and, and talk about it. But at the time it just felt wrong and bad and i didn't really know why i know now um but unfortunately that's how most of these these trips are right um one of our partners in haiti actually they refer to it as a poverty zoo because it's almost like you're taking people in a bus you know through the slums or some developing community and taking pictures without permission um, and making people feel like they are in a zoo and it's disgusting so that's why i it for so long yeah. No, I, well, I, I understand completely. It, it, it's, it's, you know, we, we don't necessarily, the, the, the people that have the means to be able to go on some of these trips are, are not necessarily uh, exposed to um, the kinds of things uh, in back home uh, that they would be exposed to in, in, when they go to places like Haiti or into developing areas. So um I, I really applaud you for, you know, being so rigorous in how you um, how you find people to do these trips and, and to ensure that they're really going there with the with the with good intentions. So uh, I, I really do applaud you on that. So before we, we wrap up, um, I wanted to first ask you if there's anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to share, but also to let people know some of the ways that they can get involved with the organization. Of course, there's always, you know, please donate to us because that's, that's the, that's our lifeblood. Um, but you know, what are, what are some real specific ways that people can, um, can really start to get a better understanding or if they do, they, if, is there volunteer opportunities, you know, how, how do they get involved? Yes. Great. So, the the team at Wellaware has done a really good job on the website, Wellaware, wellawareworld.org. Lots of resources and ways to get involved. Um, I, I think that re reading up on the issue in general, if people are uh, more interested, we also have some resources listed on the website. Um, and then I got to plug our our annual campaign. It just passed, so it's not timely. But every year, every April, we get a bunch of people to say they're not going to shower, and we call it the shower strike. And it's a, it turned into a peer to peer fundraising opportunity. But it's also a really amazing way to bring awareness to the cause in a gentle and fun way for people who don't normally or would would not 
otherwise be exposed to the cause. And it's now it's Wellware's biggest funding event, actually. And it was our very first fundraiser. And it was started because I used to not shower at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people want to know that. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're not sitting in the same studio together. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm a little bit better these days because I have to model for my child. But back then, it just didn't matter. Um, but, and then we really figured out how to monetize it. But Shower Strike is, uh, you can still read about that too on the Well Aware website. Um, and lots of people join individuals, kids, classrooms, companies, do team building activities around it. It's it's awesome. It's so fun. And it's it means a lot more clean water for people every year. And and it's kind of scary if it's, you, you just said it's your biggest fundraiser to think that there are so many people that don't want to take a shower. I am also curious, are, you know, obviously young people, students, um, and, and some very, very young are really uber aware of these kinds of issues and are getting involved particularly around climate change and you know and, and their activism is pretty stunning i don't you know i don't remember exactly what i was doing when i was 10 or 12 years old but i wasn't launching a climate lawsuit um and then you know there were 21 kids that were a part of a climate lawsuit that is still you know it's still going yeah. do you have ways for for young people for students to get involved yeah yeah and man, this new generation is phenomenal. I was on a, had another interview at some point and, and the uh, interviewer asked me, what is your advice for uh, Gen Z? And I said, I just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, in a way that I certainly didn't at that age. So, um, but for, for our crusade specifically, we have youth ambassadors. It's an application process. But uh, they end up getting to play a really cool role, sometimes travel over with us. It's a really neat opportunity. And then again, we have that uh, shower strike and lots and lots of youth groups get involved in that. And then we also have internships, uh, at least four or five at any given sem semester. And that's a neat way, too, to get involved. And do you currently have internship opportunities? We do. I I'm pretty sure we're interviewing now for fall internships. So it's a good time in the next few weeks. Oh, that's fantastic. So um, is there anything that we haven't touched on? Well, actually, there's one thing because you just got an award today. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, it was so exciting and we, we feel very, very honored. There's um, an organization called Recognize Good and every year they hold an Ethics in Business Award which I just learned today is actually voted on by um, university students and another um, organization and well aware won the award this year and we just accepted it. And it was really cool. Really. Well, that's, that's awesome. Congratulations. It, you, it, it's an, an award that's uh, an Austin um, organization or is it uh, statewide in Texas or it, it is. It is Central Texas based. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. 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 So um, we're really excited because we're going to tear. We Tara um, is going to start working with you and um, yeah. looking at a couple projects in East Africa with one of our conservation partners, Matras. So that's really really exciting. Um, and I'm just 
what else would you like to share before we we wrap up and and let you go back and bask in your award glow? <laughs> oh gosh, I, we're we're very very grateful all the time for anybody who wants to reach out and ask us questions and and spread the word and maybe dig a little bit deeper into um, this this cause and how to do it properly. And I mentioned we have uh, resources on the WellAware website. We also have some really great resources on the WellBeyond website, and that is wellbeyondwater.com. We even have a white paper on water system failure and a lot of uh, really good um, uh, uh, opportunities to read articles on the issue. It is my obsession. So we try to keep it populated with good content. So, yeah, I mean, and, le- and like you said before, Kim, if you want to visit wellawareworld.org and make a contribution, that is a very meaningful way to be able to be a part of what we do. And because we are so lean, it is only $15 to provide clean water to one person for the rest of their life. So that's pretty cool. That is amazing. And um, and again, the website is wellawareworld.org. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. Um, but I, I just want to thank um, my guest today, Sarah Evans, the founder of Well Aware and Well Beyond. Uh, well Beyond is their social good company. Um, and Catherine Bergman, who is the engineer and COO of Well Beyond. I just, it was, it's been an absolute absolute joy talking with you both. And I'm going to be really excited to hear Catherine when she joins uh, Terra Impact Stories in the very near future, hopefully. So thank you both for, for being here. We're so Thanks grateful. so much for having us. Yeah, big honor, Kim. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you can help Terra Conservation Initiatives invest in the future of organizations like this one we featured today, uh, well, uh, well aware please go to terraconservation.org to donate. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Catherine. Have a beautiful day. You too. Thank Thank you you so much. To learn more about Terra's conservation efforts and support this important work, please visit terraconservation.org or terrastories.bz. And please reach out to us at info at for questions, comments, or suggestions for topics. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.